0: are then looking to God for his help. Let's uh, turn to the passage that we read there uh, in Second Kings and chapter 5, and uh, the well-known history of Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, but not so much Naaman this morning, but reading in verse 2, we read that the Syrians had gone out on raids, and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on or served Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, "If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy." And Naaman went in and told his master, that's the king, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now, of course, when we think of this passage, which most of us do know very well, we tend to think of the three main characters who are obviously to the fore in the history. The first of these is Elisha himself, who is the great man of God, whose ministry is recorded in the opening chapters of this book. The second is one that we didn't actually read, but we'll come to him, God-willing next Lord's Day, and uh, that's Gehazi, who is Elisha's assistant, a man, sadly, who was in a position of office in the church, but nonetheless turns out to be spiritually barren in itself. Uh, A tragic story of a man who wasn't a leper but became one. Of course, the third character is the one that is at the heart of this particular narrative and that is, of course, Naaman, who is the commander-in-chief of the very powerful, increasingly powerful Syrian army, a man, uh, of course, who is introduced to us here as a leper. Now I suppose if you were going to dramatise these events, the curtain would rise, probably, in Syria, where the chapter begins, in the home of this very powerful man in the kingdom of Syria, because of course we're introduced to him right away as a man whose life is turned upside down, uh, because of a disease in his own body. I'll come to that, God willing, this evening. But in some ways the curtain wouldn't really rise there. There's a way in which the curtain shouldn't rise in Syria at all, but it should rise rather a bit before that in the kingdom of Israel, just across the border, because that's really, in a way, where these events begin. In a family home, a family that we don't know, somewhere in the north of Israel, adjacent to the border with Syria. Israel then, as now, borders Syria, and then, as now, there was tension all the time between the two kingdoms. Now, it's in that home that we would find the fourth character that comes to the fore in this passage. It's easy, of course, to pass her by, It's easy to forget her, but the fact of the matter is that without her and without the life that she lives and the words that she spoke, because both matter, both matter, without the life that she lives and the words that she spoke, none of this would have happened. No healing for Naaman, no blessing of God in his life. Now, when I say that this girl was in a family home, I say that deliberately, although we know nothing of her family circumstances, because in those days, even when things broke and broke badly, uh, families at least had the sense to recognize their God-given responsibility and to pick up the slack. In other words, even if she was an orphan, we don't know, she could have been, but even if she was, the family would always step in to care. <coughs> You remember the story of another uh, Israelite young girl, Esther, uh, who was an orphan. Uh, No mother, no father, but she was cared for by her uncle Mordecai. That of course is how families were intended to be, that's how families should be. And of course the more the state intrudes into the lives of families and individuals, The more inclined families and individuals are to divest themselves of responsibility and to think it's the state's duty to care. To care for our relatives, to care for our family members. That's not the way that God appointed it. The family takes precedence over government. The the family existed before government did. Uh, Governments are there for families. Families are not there for governments. Governments are therefore families. And whenever anyone in our family, even an extended family, suffers, we are to see that as our duty and our responsibility, not to sit back and wait for a state to intervene. And whenever we willingly divest our responsibilities onto the state, we sign our own death warrants as God-given institutions as families. Now, let's always bear that in mind. The family precedes the government. And the government is there for the family. The family is not there for the government. And really a government should only intervene when a family is unwilling for some reason or unable to help in a time of need. Now I'm only saying that because we know for a fact that this girl would be cared for in some home by some relatives. We do know that. And However it happened, of course... This girl, of course, came to faith. Now, in the, I mentioned just earlier on that then as now there was tension between Syria and Israel. Um, there's a way in which that's no surprise. It was through the north of Israel that idolatry always came. We're always weak at our borders. We know ourselves as individuals that there's a border country in here somewhere where where we're liable to be weak and where the devil gets entrance. The same is true geographically. It was through the north, through Dan, that idolatry always tended to come in and come in across the border. So it's no surprise in a way that God brings the chastisement from the north. In fact, he does that hundreds of years later in the time of Daniel. Uh, It's from the north and from Babylon. Uh, that the chastisement comes in. And God raises up Syria at this time um, in order to be a whip to chastise Israel. In fact, it's an interesting thing here, but we're told at the end of verse 1 that the king thought a lot of Naaman, his commander-in-chief, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. No. You don't think of the Lord as giving victory to other countries in wars, but he does. He organizes all these victories and all these defeats. And he's raising up Syria as a kind of warning to the people of God. Put your house in order, turn back to the Lord, or I will unleash a fury. And I will unleash it from the north. So this threat from Syria is actually... Uh, A reminder to them of their sin and a call to repentance. The war hadn't actually begun. The Syrian king at this time is a man called Ben-Hadad. And he took the kingdom of Syria to its height. And he's preparing for war. By the time chapter 6 comes around, there's a full-blown attack from Syria on Israel. But at this point, all you have is skirmishes at the border. These skirmishes are designed to see whether Israel has the strength to resist. Uh, and of course, she doesn't. In fact, when the king first gets word that the Syrian commander in chief is coming down for a healing, he suspects look, he says, he, he says to the people in his, um, in his civil service, they're just trying to pick a quarrel. It's quite obvious that there's no sense in the people as to how to respond. You'd think the people of God, like the church today, would know that when a calamity is coming near, and when God is raising up a false religion, raising it up to a position of power, that, like he has in this land, that, that God is giving serious warnings to the people of, of what they really need to do to recognize where they're going wrong and to turn back to himself. But Israel's response is a poor response. They know there's a problem, but they don't know the cause of it. So these raiding parties come to the border. And on this occasion the the raiding party from across the border doesn't just collect money or livestock but it collects people, at least one person. This young girl, they seize her and take her across the border into a foreign land and a hostile land. Now... It's very hard for us to imagine the pain that's involved in that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, we hear of people being kidnapped, people disappearing. And of course, very often the parents are or whoever's looking after for a long, long time have no idea at all where, where that person has ended up. Is that person alive or is this person dead? <coughs> It can co- cause a distress in a small community too, in a small border town. And of course to the people of God it can be a distress. There's, it's not impossible since this girl was a Christian that she came from a Christian home too. And, and what questions do these things bring? You know, like, why? Where is God? Why does God allow this? I mean, Syria are the enemy. We, we are the people of God. Why should it be That a girl like this is just seized from the home and taken by the enemy leaving us in grief and in near despair so it's a pain and of course it's hard to imagine her pain too. She's a young girl the Hebrew word along with her destiny here as a servant in um, Naaman's wife's household leads us to think of a girl that's perhaps somewhere around the age of 12 or 13. She's old enough to fulfil this duty, but she's still young enough to be referred to as a young girl. So she's ripped away at a very difficult age from everything she knows and, uh, of course, from the worship of the true God. Now, it would be easy to crumble as a teenager if If you could put yourself into that situation, put yourself in it and remember yourself at that age and how you thought and how you felt about things, just to be ripped out at that and taken into the citadel of enemy territory. Now, one thing that's quite clear, and I think we should understand it at the outset, and in a way it lays a, a groundwork for everything else we can say about this girl. One thing that's plain is that she clearly has faith in God. Her testimony to Elisha, the prophet, is also a testimony to Elisha's God. Not everyone in Israel thought a lot of Elisha. In fact, uh, a lot of the people in Israel have just followed the falling away from the true faith and the true religion that had come in, especially in Ahab's time. You'll remember that Elijah's predecessor as a prophet, Elijah, was frequently confronting Ahab and Jezebel, who who really took the nation very far down. Took her down so low that she never recovered from that. She never recovered, and it's not too long after this, really, that the northern kingdom of Israel was scattered to the four winds from to say from which she never really regathered, but you know God's doing His own work. He's been He's been regathering Israel for a long time. People often say that no one knows where the ten tribes in the north went. God knows where the ten tribes in the north went, and when it's time for them to come back and be converted, that will happen according to God's. But the fact of the matter is that at this time most of Israel was quite degenerate. The actual temple at which they worshipped was half pagan and half Jehovah worship. And the official priests in the land, the official priests of Jehovah, were not worthy of being called priests of Jehovah. And since the days of Ahab, the true worshippers of God wouldn't be found going along to the temple as they always used to. They would be found on the hills or beside the streams or gathering in conventicles as our own fathers used to uh, gather, our forefathers and mothers too, uh, way back during the killing times in Scotland. And this girl belonged to that group. They recognized the remnant. They recognized that Elisha was really God's prophet. They knew that he spoke from God. They knew that others claimed to speak from God, but they knew that Elisha spoke from God. And those who really believed that were still influential enough. I mean, it's interesting that by the time of Elisha's uh, ministry, he, he, the king gives him an ear. Uh, if you go a little further back, the king wouldn't give Elijah an ear. He sometimes had to listen, but here the king gives him an ear. Elijah has access to the king and to his council but she was of the people who were on the Lord's side so you can imagine that for her it's a huge trial of her faith and that trial essentially begins when she's taken up by these raiders these soldiers and taken across the border now there are times of darkness and trial in our lives all of us and very often when we have a trial we think your own trials are unique and well, of course in some respect they are um, but we think perhaps they're worse than other people's trials and no one really knows what we're going through and we can wonder why why God has appointed them for ourselves now if we can wonder that well she could wonder that too but in times like that God has a way of drawing near and reminding us that all things work together for good. That's a text we all know. If we're Christians anyway, we know that text, that all things work together for good. Now, it doesn't work together for good for everybody. I mean, the world has its own version of that text. You might have it yourself. You may sometimes say to people, oh, you know, things are hard just now, but... But they'll all work out for the best. Will they? What guarantee have you got of that, that they'll all work out for the best? Who says it's going to be all right on the night? Because God certainly doesn't. I mean, Ezekiel's message, like every other preacher's message to the people was, tell the wicked it will not be well with them. Yes, tell the righteous that it will be well with them, but tell the wicked that it will not be well with them. Now, the fact of the matter is, friend, if if you are not a Christian today, if you're not a believer in God, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can't tell you that everything in your life will work (coughs) for good. In fact, if I told you that, I would be lying. Because the fact of the matter is quite the opposite. That everything will actually work against you. And everything will be to your condemnation on that great day when you stand before God. Even the good things that were in your life, God will only take them and say, Why? Why, when I did that for you, and when I showed you that, and when I healed you then, why did you not acknowledge me and, and recognize me and worship me And love me, which you are called to do. Why not? So even the good in your life will be for your condemnation. The amazing thing, of course, is this. That although everything will turn to your condemnation, as you are right now, the simple, if you'll pardon the use of of that word, the simple act of turning to the Lord Jesus Christ changes all that completely. And far from everything being to your condemnation, actually every single thing will be for your good. And even past things will also turn out, lo and behold, to be for your good. Um, As Paul says, when he says all things work together for for, uh, good, to whom? When he says, to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. All things in their cup or in their portion work for the good. Now God doesn't just ask us to believe that but uh, usually when the trials and the difficulty comes he finds a way of burning such a truth into our souls. He will bring his word and even little providences that remind us, first, that God is with us and secondly, that God is in control. Now you need to know both. It's no use for God to be with you if God's not in control. And neither is it any use for God to be in control if he's not actually with you. But if he burns these two things into your heart, A, he is actually with you, And B, he is in control. Well, that brings you to a good place even when you're in a bad place. The one who's with me is in control. The one who's in control is with me. It's subtly different when you take it in both these ways, but they're both precious. The one who's in control of this apparent mess is with me. The one who is with me is the one who is in control. And she comes to realise that too. Now this girl um, doesn't have a complete Bible like you do and like I do. We have that wonderful privilege in, in front of us. She's got most of the Old Testament. She's even got some of the prophets of course in the Old Testament too. Now it's not difficult for me to believe, or I'm sure for you, uh, where she would get her encouragement from. If there's um, one story that enchants us ever since we were children, it's, it's that of Joseph. And we're always enchanted because of the way in which God just worked in his life as a very young ma- man, a teenager himself. He was in a worse case than her. And he was actually sold by his own brothers. I mean, at least that's one thing this girl couldn't say. It must have been terribly confusing for Joseph to be sold by his own family. A family that he was looking to as as God's family and as God's people while he was chosen. uh, Sold, sorry. and Sold by his own family and taken to Egypt. But we're told right away in that narrative when Joseph arrives in Egypt, we're told that the Lord was with him. So whatever's going to happen to him, and he's going to end up in a dungeon, but we're told at the beginning that the Lord is with him. Now I think we're told that at the beginning because Joseph is told that at the beginning. God is a way of saying to his people, you're in the fire, you're in the water, but I am with you. He finds a way of communicating that great truth and I have no doubt that Joseph would realise it when he was introduced uh, to the Potiphar and he was brought to the house of the Potiphar. I don't think Potiphar is a personal name in the Hebrew. I think it is an office, it's a title. So he's brought into the house of this powerful man who is very close to Pharaoh. And Joseph must have thought, well, there's a reason for this. I don't know what, but there's a reason for this. And we're immediately told that the Lord was with him. Now, she must have felt something similar. I mean, at that age, being led into Syria, I mean, who knows what could await you, really? Who knows? But lo and behold, she finds herself, by whatever twist of providence, we don't know, but she finds herself in the house of the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. Now, as we'll come to tonight, that's a big house to be in. That's an important house to be in. And she is brought into the service of her mistress, and I'm quite sure that that encouraged her to encourage herself in the Lord. Uh, when David was at a low point in his life, uh, when his family were taken, were kidnapped, and the six hundred men who were with him, their families were kidnapped, and the people. Basically, blamed David for it and said we've followed you and this is the mess we find ourselves in Um, and they were ready to stone him we're told simply that David encouraged himself in the Lord now um, sometimes it takes a lot to get us there because we'll try to encourage ourselves in a whole host of things before we encourage ourselves in the Lord but When the Lord sometimes just takes everything away, you've got nothing left but the Lord in which to encourage yourself. And uh, she was in that place. She encouraged herself in the Lord. If her family were believers back in Israel, they would have to do the same. We don't know where this girl has gone. We've no idea if she's dead or alive. But God has his purpose. You know... People people sometimes say, Christians sometimes say, well, and they say it of you, you know, if you're a, if you're a worldly person, they say, How do you survive in your situation without God? And it's so true. At least, you know, when this happens to you, if you are trusting in God, then the first question may be, Why? What sense does it make? But the immediate response is, God knows. God knows. And let God do his work, as William Cooper said, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face easy to learn, to recite but it's when the providence frowns that we need to remember it. Now because this young girl believes in God she accepts her providence. Now it's not a good thing in a Christian to be kicking against providence and we're all guilty of it. Far more guilty than we realise complaining about our circumstances and our situation and our job or a lack of a job, or whatever. It's not good. It's not, it's not an attractive quality in a Christian. Well, it's not attractive to complaining anyway. But complaining about providence is not good. This this girl shows that he, she accepts her providence from God and she shows it in her life and in her speech. Now, she shows it first in her life. Now, we all know that we're to serve God in our calling. As Paul reminds us, whatever calling we're called in, serve God in that calling. He actually says to the Corinthians, and some people in the Corinthian church were slaves, and he said to them, were you called as a slave? Well, serve God as a slave. Certainly, he says, if God brings about your freedom, well, he says, use it. But until God brings about your freedom, serve God as a slave. Now, um, That can't have been easy. It can't have been easy. But from the little we're told, in the Bible here, we know that she must have served God well as a slave. In other words, she worked honestly as a slave, and she worked hard as a slave. It's not difficult to induce that from the Scriptures, because if she didn't, she'd be out in a year. And she'd be somewhere else. But she obviously worked honestly and she worked hard. Now the command to work honestly and work hard is for all of us, whatever job we're in. Even if you're unhappy in your job, that doesn't matter. It's another question whether you should be unhappy anyway in your job. But even if you are, you still work honestly and you work hard. You don't time waste. You don't rob your employer by doing that because that is a form of theft. And the servants too were commanded to work in exactly the same way. Now the Bible's very clear about this. We can say lots of things about slavery and so on and chapel slavery is very different from economic slavery. Slave trade is very different from ordinary economic slavery. There's another time to go into that but it's interesting that the Bible tells slaves to work properly. And um let me just take a couple of examples. There's, there's uh, first of all, in J- James, and in 1st James, uh, sorry, Peter, 1st Peter and chapter 2, Peter says this, <coughs> Servants, and that is slaves, by the way, this is not a paid servant like you have, you know, you are used to people taking servant jobs. Many, many girls used to leave here and take servant jobs in Glasgow. You're, this is... This is not that. This is is bond servants. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, which means respect them. So that's, that's that's the default position, respect your master. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are harsh or difficult. Your boss can be like that. This is commendable, if because of conscience towards God you endure grief, pain, difficulty? What credit is it if you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and you still suffer, this is commendable before God, because to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps When he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he suffered, he didn't threaten back. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. You see, that's a high calling. Well, I didn't write it. And it is a high calling. Christianity always is. There are people out there who think Christianity is easy. Not the Christianity I know from the Bible. I was talking to a couple of brethren about this the other day, that people think that Christianity is a crutch for people who can't cope in the world. A crutch for people who can't cope in the world. Dear me, the world would be far easier if, if you weren't a Christian from one perspective. There would be a lot of things suddenly, a lot of difficulties taken out in your life if you, if you weren't a Christian. The, the, the hard thing is to actually come to believe you're a sinner, to discover more and more about your sinfulness more and more about the sinfulness of the world all that's difficult it's difficult to have the devil on your case all the time he's fast asleep over you if you're in the world he doesn't need to bother but he's very active and a crutch for people who can't cope not at all is this, is this a, an easy coping strategy? no when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God or again, the one that we read earlier in Ephesians and chapter 6, in verse 4. Bond servants, again we're dealing with slaves here, they are owned, owned by their masters. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. In other words, you're human masters. With respect and trembling and with sincerity of heart. In other words, you're not just performing, you're, you're genuinely doing the best as though you're doing it to Christ he says don't serve them with eye service in other words just pleasing them superficially as men pleasers but do it as bond servants of Christ remember that that who's ultimately your master and your master for some reason has seen fit to put you under another master that's God's prerogative get on with it doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing your service as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, you serve your masters knowing that you are a servant of Christ and that Christ has called you to that. And I'm sure, you know, i was saying something along these lines when we were ordaining our office bearers, but that kind of attitude, remembering that whatever you do, you do to Christ that that, that transforms everything in life if you really keep it to the front of your life it transforms working in school it can transform maths and physics art and chemistry it transforms your desk at work it transforms your spade or your digger or your lorry It it transforms your white coat in the hospital, it transforms everything if you're doing it for Christ, even the servant to the master. Complaining doesn't commend Christ to anybody. And, you know, it's worth mentioning in the passing, there's a, there's a lot of, um, let me be clear by saying this at the outset, it, it isn't right the way some people are paid a certain amount, and some people are not paid a certain amount. There are some people who are underpaid and undervalued. But we've got to watch this. Got to watch this. Got to watch that we don't go around complaining all the time about what our wage or our salary is. What example? What effect would it have on you just now if I start? If I start saying to you that I think my salary is really low, you would say, "Come on, you, sh- you shouldn't be saying that." I quite agree, and for the record, I'm more than happy with it. But well, what about yourself, then? Is, is it really a good idea just to placard all over the place that my salary should be far higher than it is? Maybe it's one thing for me to say, well, yes, I, I'd like to fight for a better salary for you, but for me to say, I deserve more and I need more all the time because everybody's caught up in it and everybody starts saying, we need more and we deserve more. Is, is that how she was? no. When the soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, what do, we, what do we need to do if we want to repent? John the Baptist said, be content with your wages.
1: You know, that's
0: quite astonishing now. That. That's not what you expected John the Baptist to say to these soldiers, was it? You'd expect him to say, oh well, stop serving in the Roman army for a start. And he didn't say that at all. He picked up on what was an actual feature in the soldiers' lives and that was that they kept moaning all the time about their salary. (laughs) Now, I'm not speaking about you and I don't expect you to speak about me. I just expect me and you to go home and say, look, have I just started doing this habitually, complaining about my money because I'm comparing myself with someone else? Look, someone else will always be better off than you. And believe me, someone else will always be a lot worse off than you. Maybe we don't need to focus on that so much. At least as far as we ourselves are concerned. Now clearly, this girl just got on with her job. And she got on with her job in such a way as to show that she cared for them. And in such a way as to earn their respect for her. Now how do we know that? Well, let's take, first of all, her care for them. Now, Paul interestingly said, when servants are to serve their masters, that they're to do so with goodwill. In other words, this is what Christianity does. It's always difficult because it just keeps going behind the work and into your heart. He says, I'm not interested in, in doing your work uh, as a man, please. Sir. I want you to do it, he says, with goodwill towards your master." even if your master is difficult. Remember that in your workplace. Mm -hmm. Now, for this girl, that wasn't easy. Why? Well, it's the enemy. This is Syria. This is Syria. And this is the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. If there's any house, okay, maybe a more comfortable house to be a servant in, but if there's any house where you don't want to get on with serving a master, this is it. But she, when she hears that her master is seeking, she recognises that in the house. And I'm quite sure through time, just as Joseph earned the confidence of the master in the house, I'm quite sure she earned the confidence of her mistress. Mistress shared with her, all's not well with my husband. But she steps forward and she tells the man of God what she should do, what he should do. How you can't take out. This is a very jaundiced and cynical world that we're living in. People are desperately cynical. But it would be really cynical to say that this girl is only communicating that to this man so that she can somehow get out of her situation herself. That would be a pretty pathetic view of the matter. It's quite obvious. You don't even have to read much between the lines at all. It's quite obvious that she actually cares for her master. And she cares for her mistress. She's got to that position. And we all can know. Because Christ calls us to it. When he says things like this. And these things go in here. And they go out there. But when they stop they really arrest us. Do good and pray. For those who despitefully use you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. That you may be the children of your father. Who is in heaven. These are eternal spiritual truths. They were not just revealed for the first time by Christ. Yes, I'm sure Christ taught them with a special power and with an urgency and a freshness and a newness, but they were always true as far as the Gospel was concerned. Love the people even if these people are not immediately lovable. She did that. She wants the best even for those who have taken her captive who knows maybe God will use it for good so maybe she just began by saying I've got to accept my providence but she certainly ends up in a place where she cares for her master she wants what's best for her now all of us as Christians want what's best for you too if you're not a believer our hearts desire is that you too come to know your disease. And the only place where you can get healing for that. I'll say more about this tonight. But as well as ending up caring for her master, she ends up earning their respect. How do we know that? Well, think about it for a minute. Just think about it. They actually listened to what she said. Now, here you have the commander in chief of the Syrian army. And on the basis of what a a little girl in the house, well, a young girl in the house tells him, he takes a message to his own king who's busy trying to whip up a war against Israel and is quite happy with these raids that are going on across the border. And he says to the king that there is a prophet in Israel. And this girl says that he can actually help me. And that king then has to communicate with the king of Israel, which he doesn't like, before the communication can get to Elisha. Do you think Naaman would do any of that without a reason? I mean, who's going to to listen to a a 13-year-old who says, well, there's somebody in Israel who can actually heal you. Not unless, not unless there is something in the girl that commands what she's saying. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. There's shame involved in this for for Nehemiah. Shame. But there's something about the girl that makes him willing to endure that Shame. Would he have listened to a girl who was moody, lazy, resentful, not doing her job, grudging her providence, moaning about it every day? don't think so. But he would listen to a girl who actually should have collapsed in some ways, but is actually retaining her dignity, her integrity, and her simple faith in God. You know, that communicates itself. Believe you me, that communicates itself. Just as it did to Joseph's master. Joseph wasn't too long in Potiphar's house when Potiphar noticed that the Lord was with him. Now that's a, you see, that's a little, going a little further than saying the Lord was with him, is it not? The Lord was with him is one thing. Potiphar noticing it is another. The Lord was with Joseph, and He prospered him, and he was in the house of his master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made what he did prosper in his hand. Notice the industry and the way he just conducted it conducted so. itself. And later on, when Joseph ended up in prison Um, same thing again but the Lord was with Joseph the previous sentence says there he was in the prison confined but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison the world notices it notices consistent Christianity it doesn't notice sham Christianity, it laughs at it. Now, it may have its own reasons for opposing con- Christ- consistent Christianity, but it notices it. The keeper of the prison committed all the prisoners in the prison into Joseph's hand. And whatever they did there, it was his doing, and the keeper of the prison did not need to look anything. Look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Uh, There's a difference when a Christian walks with God in whatever they're doing. Any walk of life, any job, and any providence. So there was a witness in her life, otherwise they'd have paid no attention to what what she said. But you'll notice that she did say something too. A witness is not complete. If we've been given speech, a witness is not complete without speaking. Uh, some, sometimes we can all cop out of speaking by saying, well, I let my life do the talking. You now, as a general well, rule. That's quite good, all right. That's got a lot to commend it, but <laughs> doesn't get us off a hook. Supposing um, Jesus had lived a perfectly holy life and said nothing, what would be the result of that? We wouldn't know, would we? We'd guess and we'd speculate, but we wouldn't know. Suppose John the Baptist had lived a perfectly holy life, but he had never opened his mouth and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Suppose you lived a holy life yourself. A perfect, let's say there was no sin in your life, right? And you lived where you are in your community for the rest of your life. What would that say to people? just that they never really saw you sinning. You would never say why. You would never say who was responsible for it. You would never give anybody the glory for it because you're not relying on your lips, you're letting your life speak, but your lips are part of your life. And when the time comes for her to speak, she she lifts her voice and she says, would to God, or I really wish, by the way, notice her sincerity again, she wants what's best. I really wish, she says, if only my master were with the prophet in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, I don't know about you, but these words strike me as being not the first time that she spoke about the prophet. Do you not think it's interesting that it doesn't say that there is a prophet in Samaria who could help? No, that's not what she says. She says, if only my master were with the prophet in Samaria. In other words, the one I've spoken about. It's not an introduction. She's building on something that she said earlier. Just as Christians do. Uh, we like to speak of what Christ has done. Both in the scriptures, in history, and past. In our own lives and in the lives of people who no, like to speak about it. And she would have built up bit by bit. She's spoken of Elisha before. She's spoken of the works of God. She's spoken of the miracles that she's heard of herself. God for her is a living thing. And that communicates itself to these people. And a cheerful witness in adversity can't be overrated. You know, there's a way in which if you were Neiman and his wife. You know, suppose she said... Right, she did say, there's a prophet in Israel. If only my master was there. If only he was with the prophet, he would help her. There's a way in which, you know, if you were smart enough, the first thing you would say to the girl would be, "Uh, you know, who who are you to say that? Who are you to talk about God's help? What are you doing here? Did God help you? Did God help your family? Why didn't God stop you being taken from Israel here into Syria? Why has God put you into servitude in this house is, is your whole life not a very argument against what you're saying? That the Lord heals? And that the Lord is good? That sounds good. But you know, when you're being confronted with someone who's experiencing all that, but is still believing that God is good and merciful and kind and gracious, it's hard to keep going in that direction. It's hard to keep down a Christian who insists... On loving the Lord and serving in the Lord, serving the Lord, even in circumstances they don't understand themselves. I'm quite sure had they said that, had they said that to the girl, "What are you doing here, and where is your God?" I'm quite sure she would say, "Oh, believe me, God is with me. I don't understand why God has brought me here, but I know He has. Perhaps Neyman, it's for you. Perhaps Neyman, it is for you. That's all it took. I mean, there's not a lot of conversation Of course, there's always more than, than we're told. But God doesn't need a lot of conversation from us. If you can back up a little speech with a consistent life, it's amazing the power it can have. Her word goes to Naaman, from Naaman to the king, from the king across the border to the king of Israel, from the king of Israel down to Elisha, and before you know the Commander-in-Chief is converted because she spoke up just a little bit. You know, a living witness from you or a living witness from me, who knows where it can end up? Just who knows? And by submitting to providence, difficult providence, she developed a love for her enemies and she developed a respect for her Christian calling. Now, I'm going to essentially (coughs) leave leave the girl there really, but I hope we're leaving her there with a sense that she's not to be passed over. Absolutely not. Like I say, she's the fourth character in this book and she certainly shines a lot brighter than Gehazi does. But I'm sure when Naaman is converted, when he dips in that river and when he comes back to Syria, we know from the history of that is so thankful. You know, he had brought riches, and he's just wanting to pour them on Alicia and anybody else that he can find. He's so thankful. It's impossible for me to believe that he comes back to the house and doesn't think of the girl who shared her faith. Um, and I'm quite sure he thanked her. And I don't know what she would have said to him, but I know it would be something like what Joseph said to his brother. You meant it for evil. Your country meant it for evil. Your people meant it for evil. But God meant it for good, and He did. Perhaps even Nehemiah just let her go. We don't know that. And of course, God did mean it for good. He did have a purpose in view, and that became so plain when the master of her house just suddenly had a lesion. On his skin, and it doesn't go away. Let's put the spotlight on him. God willing, this evening, let us pray. Eternal God, truly, Thy footsteps are in the deep, and uh, how perplexing Thy providence often is. If those in Israel could see across the border. They would see a girl being used mightily for the Lord, but that vision is denied. But nonetheless, we can see such things by faith. And uh, help us to believe that thy footsteps are always in the deep, however deep they may be. Grant us the grace to accept our own providence (coughs) until that providence changes. Help us to work conscientiously and well whoever our master is. To do whatever our hand finds to do, and to do it with all our might, as unto the Lord. In the Savior's name. Amen. Our last day's singing is Psalm 119. <clears throat> And at verse 9. Psalm 119 at verse 9. By what means shall a young man learn? Now the word for man here is actually, is also inclusive of a young woman too. His way to purify, if he according to thy word, thereto attempt to be. Unfainedly thee have I sought with all my soul and heart. O let me not from the right path of thy commands depart. Thy word I in my heart hath hid, that I offend not thee. O Lord, thou ever blessed art, my sta- thy statutes teach thou me. The judgments of thy mouth, each one my lips declare of. Now here's a young person who treasures of God's word, and when the time comes, they are willing to share it. Because more joy thy testimonies weigh than riches all me gave. I'm sure Naaman and his wife looked on a young girl who was far happier than themselves. Let's stand to sing verses 9 to 14. (coughs) By
1: what